Listener Production. Hello, Sasha Barbagat with you. Overnight, a woman from suburban Hobart became a queen. That was the moment when Mary Donaldson stepped out onto the balcony of Christiansborg Palace in Copenhagen this morning, our time, and was proclaimed Queen Mary of Denmark alongside her husband, King Frederick. It's a minimal ceremony, actually. No coronation, just a proclamation from the parliament. Mary had an almost unbelievable rise to royalty after meeting then-Prince Frederick in Sydney during the 2000 Olympics. And on today's briefing, we explore how an ordinary Aussie soared to the top of one of Europe's oldest monarchies. That chat coming up in the second half of today's ep. First, let's get to the headlines with Bensian Siebert. It's Monday, January 15. Hi, Sasha. Foreign Minister Penny Wong will meet with families of hostages of Hamas when she travels to Israel and the occupied Palestinian West Bank. It comes as we pass 100 days of the conflict, with protesters in Tel Aviv launching a 24-hour rally calling for the return of the 132 people still being held by Hamas. Meantime, Israel has laid out its defence against the charge of genocide in the International Court of Justice. On Thursday last week, South Africa accused Israel of genocide over its killing of more than 23,000 Palestinians in Gaza. And on Friday night, our time, Israel responded, describing South Africa's claims as profoundly distorted and wrong. Now, Bensian, you watched the hearings. Could you take us through a little bit how Israel defended its actions in Gaza? Yeah, so the first defence that they had was self-defence. They described in pretty gruesome detail how Hamas fighters invaded Israel on October 7 and killed around 1,200 Israeli civilians. They also said that the court has no power over Hamas because they're not a signatory to the Genocide Convention. So if the court ordered that Israel was going to have to cease all military action in Gaza, their argument was that they would then be left defenceless against Hamas. The second argument that they made was that South Africa has not shown that Israel intends to commit a genocide. This is, according to experts, one of its strongest arguments. It also talks about the extraordinary measures that it's taken to protect civilians, as it describes it, like giving prior warning before bombardment and uh, increasing numbers of aid trucks and establishing field hospitals, that kind of thing. South Africa, of course, would argue that that doesn't mitigate the enormous damage that Israel has done and the almost 24,000 people who've been killed in Gaza. Mm -hmm. What else was covered off in this hearing? Well, Israel said that those civilians that have died, it's all Hamas's fault because it hides its military equipment and its facilities in houses and mosques and hospitals and schools and booby traps these places. Here's Galid Raguan from the Israeli Ministry of Justice making some of that argument. In urban warfare, civilian casualties may be the unintended but lawful result of attacks on lawfully military objectives. International humanitarian law recognizes this reality 
and provides a framework for balancing military necessity with humanitarian considerations. These do not constitute genocidal acts. And the final argument that they made was kind of a procedural one, which said that you didn't give us enough time before you launched this court case. Mm -hmm. All right. So when are we likely to see some sort of movement on this from the ICJ? So what the ICJ can do is they can issue provisional orders and we could expect that to happen within weeks. I spoke to Juliet McIntyre, who's a lawyer who's appeared before the International Criminal Court for an episode last week and also over the weekend, and she predicts that the court's unlikely to order a full ceasefire because Israel may well just ignore that, Uh, but what it probably will do is order more humanitarian aid, um, less uh, um, less intense fighting and prevention of the, uh, the starvation that's occurring in, in Gaza at the moment. Okay, Ben Sien, thanks so much for the update and, uh, yeah, keeping us across that one. Global leaders have reacted to the results of the Taiwan election, drawing anger from Beijing, which had hoped to see the ruling party booted. Lai Ching-tae won an unprecedented third term in power for the pro-sovereignty Democratic Progressive Party and is promising to keep up the fight against China's plans to annex Taiwan. We are telling the international community that between democracy and authoritarianism, we all stand on the side of democracy. That was Lai Ching-tae in his victory speech there. Now, despite President Joe Biden reiterating that the US does not support the island nation's independence from Beijing, the foreign ministry has lashed the US State Department for congratulating the Taiwanese people, saying America seriously violated US promises that it would only maintain cultural, economic and other non-official ties with Taiwan. Japan got similar treatment for commenting on the vote and saying the country is an important friend. The reaction from China isn't unexpected, with President Xi Jinping vocal in his desire to reunite his country and Taiwan. And they're exactly the people you'd hope would be nearby if you got into trouble at the beach. A group of iron men and women coming to the rescue of at least 20 swimmers caught in a flash rip in Sydney. Yeah, we just had a massive rescue and lucky all of us were here still. That was newly crowned Iron Woman Lana Rogers there. Now, it happened yesterday afternoon at Maroubra after races had wrapped up for the event. And then a radio call went out to help a group of swimmers who were struggling about 100 metres offshore. Now, the group was made up mostly of tourists and kids who had been caught unaware by the current, which started dragging them across the beach and out into deeper water. Now, this is the amazing part. There are around 20 athletes who raced off the beach. They went in with inflatable surfboards, paddled out, and they helped save everyone involved, and no one copped any serious injuries. So one of those amazing feel-good Aussie stories there, something a bit lighter and brighter to wrap up today's headlines. Hey, Bensian, thanks so much for joining us. Next up, we're going to dig deeper into the other massive story today, which is Princess Mary from Hobart becoming Queen Overnight. Mary Donaldson was born and raised in suburban Tasmania in the 70s, the daughter of a mathematics professor and an executive assistant, with two sisters and a brother. 
After getting a law and commerce degree at the University of Tasmania, she worked in advertising in Melbourne, Edinburgh and Sydney. In 2000, she met a guy at a bar in the Harbour City during the Olympics. Little did she know at the time, he was royalty. What started as a casual romance with Prince Frederick of Denmark eventually blossomed into a love story for the history books, with the pair tying the knot in a full-blown royal wedding in Copenhagen in 2004. Mary Donaldson became Princess Mary of Denmark. Last night, our time, she became a queen following the surprise abdication of Queen Margareta on New Year's Eve. Today, we're looking at the incredible story of Mary from Tassie with Professor Sebastian Olden Jorgensen, a modern history expert from Copenhagen University. Professor, thanks for joining us. Mary's become a queen overnight. How did it happen? Did she and Frederick get a big fancy coronation like Charles did in England? It's a minimal ceremony, actually. No coronation, just a proclamation from the parliament. There's a nice procession before that where the king and queen uh, go by car from the royal palace to the parliament and the queen uh, rides in a carriage. Then there's a short meeting in the council of state uh, where she abdicates uh, signs the document. Uh, then, after a short reception, they go out on the balcony. There's a short speech by the prime minister, who then proclaims the new king. And uh, after that, a small speech by the king, uh, ending with his uh, motto. In Australia, when Mary married Frederick, it was huge news to have an Aussie make it all the way up to the you know, royal court in Denmark. It was quite an amazing thing. How common is it for a commoner to become royalty? One must say that in the Scandinavian countries, uh, it has been the normal thing to do for 50 years. Uh, It began in the the 60s with the Swedish uh, royal family, the now reigning uh, Swedish king, then prince, uh, chose a commoner from Brazil. The now ruling uh, Norwegian king uh, married a classmate. Our queen chose a a French nobleman, but uh, since then, uh, all of them, have chosen commoners and uh, the Swedes and the Norwegians have chosen native commoners, while the, the Danish royal family have chosen their, their partners outside the country. Okay, so not that uncommon then. I suppose for us here in Australia, royalty is kind of a uh, uh, such a foreign idea, so it's so fascinating to us when an Aussie makes it there. Look, what was life like for Mary when she first joined uh, the royal court in Denmark? How did the public react to her? They uh, reacted very positively. She's not only beautiful, but she's also, uh, I would say, socially intelligent. She smiles and responds uh, intelligently to what people expect. And, of course, she uh, really endeavoured to, to to learn Danish, and uh, that's that's a very central point for for all Danes that uh, foreigners learn to speak our not very easy language. But the uh, energy and the method uh, that she has always demonstrated, 
she she learned Danish and speaks it fluently and and uh, beautifully. So uh, she came and she saw and she conquered. I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I suppose now that she's stepping into that queen role, is anything going to really change for her in terms of her responsibilities or what she's doing or who she's meeting? Or is it kind of just a continuation of all the amazing work she's already done? I would uh, stress uh, the continuity. Uh, She has been developing, she has been learning, she is evidently a fast learner, and she's been training for exactly this role, and she has uh, built up a public persona with a friendly, dignified, and also serious profile. Uh, She has created this Mary Foundation uh, that uh, combats uh, bullying at school, that fights uh, isolation, marginalization, uh, domestic violence. She has reinvented the social side of the Danish monarchy, which earlier in the late 19th and the early 20th century loomed large and was, was very important. But during the reign of Queen Margaret, other, other issues have come into the forefront, more or less because everybody thought that the modern welfare state would solve all problems. Well, evidently, the modern welfare state, even in Denmark, doesn't solve all problems. And um, the monarchy has a role to play in this field, too. And she has seen it, and she has created institutions for exactly that, and she has uh, fulfilled shaped her own role and fulfilled it very methodically. And she can just continue because it is very queen-like. The next question is around, uh, I suppose, a scandal. You you speak so highly of Mary. It's, cl- it's clear that uh, she's well-respected and fairly popular among Danes. However, you know, there are reports that uh, Queen Margareta abdicated to deflect attention from the fact that there were rumours that now King Frederick had had an affair with a Mexican reality TV star. What do you say to those uh, allegations, I suppose, that it was all a distraction? (laughs) I've seen the picture from Madrid too, and they are very entertaining. And uh, it's nearly unbelievably stupid to bring yourself in such a situation as Frederick did. But one shouldn't overestimate the impact in Denmark because we have a saying, once is never, twice is a bad habit. So uh, if this remains an isolated uh, incident, people will uh, forgive and forget. And um, that the application should be... uh, well, what do we call it, like a cover-up or or a deflection of interest, Uh, that is entirely implausible because as a trick, it could just as well misfire. The Queen gave the very clear impression on the uh, 31st of, 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 of December in her speech that this was not a decision she had taken under um, stress. She was very serene, very deliberate, and um, as you maybe know, a, a poll has been um, made and only 4 or 5% of the Danish population think she should have stayed. 
So uh, she has hit the bull's eye of public opinion. And um, I don't think you can, can do that in a, in a cheap publicity stunt. Mm. I want to talk about the rest of the royal family. Frederick's younger brother, Prince Joachim, and his family uh, were brushed aside last year to quote-unquote future-proof the monarchy in Denmark. What was all that about, and is the future for the Danish royal family solid? Is it going to continue for years and years to come after Mary and Frederick are long gone? I suppose so. I'm an historian. (laughs) I know things can change, but uh, the popularity of the royal family... Uh, is not ephemeral. It is uh, a long-lasting trend. Uh, the polls have been very favorable to the royal family for years and years. Uh, of course, they can ruin it for themselves if they are stupid. Or, well, uh, biological chance also plays a role. What if not the present king, neither his oldest son, but if the next generation, if there's criminal there's a, uh, if there is someone who is mentally unstable uh, maybe really sick of mind that would be a crisis but uh, uh, right now uh, no uh, and the, the brushing aside of the of uh, Joachim or, or rather uh, that his children no longer should be counted as princes and princesses that is a, a sensible slimming down of Danish royalty. It was a, a, a way to regulate, to, to, to slim down the, the royal family, uh, also to, to counter criticism that they were too many and too extravagant. But again, I'm a historian. This um, regulation, this trimming of the royal family has been done throughout history. Mm. But this is how we do it today, because in earlier times, many younger princes and princesses simply were not allowed to marry. But today, of course, we don't uh, deny uh, this or that young man or or woman the right to marry. Of course, they can do it. But then we have to to say, no, you won't pass on the title. Before I let you go, Professor, and it's a purely uh, selfish question, given we're here down under in Australia, what does the Danish public make of Mary coming from Australia, you know, arriving, learning the language, marrying Frederick, being a popular princess and now queen? Are they as excited and astounded by what's happened as we are here? I'm, I'm sorry to say that I really don't think that uh, the Danes are so astounded. They appreciate it, but but in, in some way they expect it, you know. There comes someone to this wonderful country and this uh, the oldest monarchy of the world, uh, so uh, they adapt well that they uh, like it, at least give the appearance that they like it, we take it more or less uh, for granted. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, excuse me, but but that's how I I interpret uh, the, the sentiments of my countrymen. No, that's totally fair. We are an excitable bunch down under, so, you know, we're, we're just excited about anything these days. So appreciate your insights, Professor Sebastian Olden-Jorgensen. Thank you for joining us on The Briefing today. 
pleased to serve you. And that is all for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check back the Sabo at three for all the latest on the Taiwan elections, which happened over the weekend. And if you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Briefing, maybe you've got an idea for an episode or you'd like to have your say on one of the topics we've discussed, just go to our Instagram page and send us a message. Simple as that, The Briefing on Instagram. We'll see you tomorrow. Listener.